Hello, Imperfect listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Imperfect Pod. This is the second last interview episode that we have, and this week's guest is Dr. Rob Kelly. Dr. Rob Kelly is a world-renowned doctor with a no BS and aggressive style when combating addiction and mental health issues, especially in men. Rob himself has overcome homelessness, alcohol dependency, trauma, and a world of events uh, of the addiction treatment world. Before Rob succumbed to addiction and mental health issues, he played bass guitar at Abbey Studio with Queen, David Bowie, and Elton John, which he talked a little bit about. There's an amazing story about Elton John at the end. He is an accomplished musician, and the money he made helped him attend Oxford University to pursue a PhD in psychology. Rob's work ethic is defined by helping the addict step out of their disease and into a solution. They work with everyday people, professional, and celebrities who want to reach sobriety and live in sustained recovery through evidence-based modalities and a genuine therapeutic alliance. And on this episode, we talk a little bit about Rob's story, his past uh, with drugs, addiction, how that meshes with accomplished musicians, artists, and that world, and a lot more. So we're going to get into this episode now. As always, feel free to follow me on Instagram at The Imperfect Pod. Email me, luke at theimperfectpod.com. But now let's get into the episode. Dr. Rob Kelly, I am very excited for you to be here to speak to my listeners uh, about masculinity, manhood, drinking, trauma, and everything else that happens um, when it comes to addiction and alcoholism. So Dr. Rob, before we get into more about your story, I'm really curious to hear who is one person, dead or alive, that you would like to have over for dinner and what would you cook for them? Um, have over dinner would probably be George Bush. I did meet him once uh, when I was at a patient over there. He did come into the to the patient's house, and I met him. But yeah, I'd like to have a. I'd like to have him over, and I'm gonna cook. I'm gonna cook him fish and chips with mushy peas. What are I'm mushy peas? Like They're literally, kind of an English English delicacy. The literally peas mushed in a sauce, and they sell it in a tin. It sounds mm. disgusting, but uh, it was kind of a staple food when I was a kid. Yeah. So some nice throwback food. Yes, definitely. Perfect. <clears throat> and, and you are a really interesting person. You've, as I alluded to in the intro, overcome homelessness, alcohol dependency, trauma. Uh, and you also uh, played bass guitar with like Queen, David Bowie, Elton John. So I'm sure we're going to get into some solo stories there later. Um, but where did your whole journey start when it came from alcohol dependency, because there's a huge path that you took from being a dependent uh, on, on alcohol to now treating those with alcohol addiction. So why don't you kind of give a little of a backstory about how your whole story, story started? Well, I was thrown on, on stage with a musical family at the age of nine. We used to play the clubs, clubs and pubs around in, in, in uh, England. And uh, we was playing at Liverpool Irish Centre, where the Beatles come from. And uh, playing their Irish Centre, and uh, it's the biggest crowd I've ever seen. And they had uh, big velvet curtains, and they opened up, and we went on. I was just there's about 300 people there. And that's a lot of people, a lot of bodies for me. I couldn't really handle it. I was kept freezing. I was nervous. And it went off. My uncle said, "What's wrong with you?" I said, I just, "I'm nervous. I, I don't know why I'm nervous, but I just." And he said, "Here, take a couple of sips of this beer." Bang! Right there. As soon as I tasted it, it was just like, I found something that's going to take me to a different level. I went a lot back and asked my friends, do you know when you had your first beer? What was it like? Oh, it was horrible. Pfft, I spat it out. It was terrible. Like it was never the case for me because I was an alcoholic. I didn't know it then. But as soon as I took it, I thought this is going to change my life. And so it did. And it worked for me for a long time. It worked good. So even at the, when, was the, when was the age of this again? <clears throat> age of nine. And And you didn't? You weren't repulsed by the taste of beer? No. just I, I don't know about the taste. The taste was de minimis. It was kind of something happened when I swallowed the second or third mouthful. My body started to feel really good. And uh, I went on the second half and rocked that bass guitar like Elton John on the piano. Yeah. It was awesome. And because, I mean, I'm 24 and I hate beer now. Like, I despise the taste. I very rarely drink it for pleasure. Is there something in the, the genes, the DNA, the the bloodline that allows you to be more dependent on alcohol or, or I guess, have that kind of initial taste for it? 
Yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a predisposition there. You can always trace alcoholism back through your family. Now, you can't drink a lot of alcohol, then become an alcoholic. You can drink a lot of alcohol and become dependent and abuse alcohol, but there's a difference between the alcoholic and them guys. And uh, you can, like I said, you can trace it back, but as soon as I have that one beer, uh, I, my brain is wired differently. So when you combine that with trauma regarding the addicted brain, not the normal brain, uh, everybody has childhood trauma. And I often hear people go, well, you know, there's no deaths in my family when I was young. And here's, here's an example of, of child abuse with the addicted brain. Get down off that chair, you stupid idiot. How many times have I told you you can't go to college like your brother? You're too stupid to go there. This is what I take on board and I keep in the subconscious brain. And just at the wrong time, it releases it into my prefrontal cortex and I self-sabotage. So I've been born with self-sabotaging neural pathways, which means I will try and build up a great future for me and family and everyone like that. Then I will always tumble it down with a with a alcoholic binge somewhere that's disgusting and you know just shame and guilt and remorse and that's that's been repetition over the over 25 years or something that i was drinking mm-hmm. i like because as i've been in the space of men sharing their stories it is true it, it's men will be fine for five or six years then all <laughs> of a sudden out of nowhere it seems like they go on an alcoholic binge so that's some sort of childhood trauma relation code like dependency aspect that's not really so is that within their control or is that no here's here's the misconception about alcoholism uh when you're in in the disease and it is a disease being classed by the world health organization in 1995 as a disease and just the last few years by the medical uh board and what happens is when when we start drinking alcohol at first we can drink it with impunity and then later on somewhere, and we just still don't know where, we cross the bridge or that invisible line to, to drinking alcoholically because we have a predisposition. It's always going to end up that way for the alcoholic. And this what differs from the normal person is once we take one drink, we cannot stop, period. We just can't stop and go, okay, it's 11 o'clock now, I've got work in the morning. No, it makes no difference. We'll carry on drinking until we absolutely drop unconscious. Most of the times the people I've worked with and myself Include is what I used to do. So there isn't a choice. Now, once you recover, change neural pathways, and we'll explain that uh, shortly, uh, then you have your choices back. And it's not self-sabotaging thought patterns that we have back. It's clean, healthy, self-care neural pathways that are formed. And if we keep using them on a daily basis, then the old neural pathways that are self-sabotaging kind of get worn, there's grass on the like a freeway, there's grass and bricks, and you, know, you can't you can't drive down that way. And that's that's the ideal way to to recover from alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And and you I mean it's it's had some really bad effects on your life. And you were homeless and you have experienced assaults on the street. And but why is it that it seems that men are more likely to be alcohol dependent or alcoholics in is that what your studies have seen have you seen more men going to alcoholism is it something more innate in us like what is it that connects men and and the desire for alcohol well i i think that's the case but only slightly 60 40 i would say of course in the early days women couldn't be alcoholics has never seen drinking but men what happens with with people like me is i get into a mess and I'm so embarrassed and shameful and, you know, that I don't tell anybody until the last minute. If I don't know I'm suffering from alcoholism. So, yeah, I suffer from a lot of trauma, a lot of guilt, uh, a lot of shame. Uh, and it just, it just seems to, to continue and continue. Uh, whereas, and, out, and out of control. Whereas what we've seen women do is get help from day one or two. They'll speak to a friend or... Mom and dad will step in, but with men, it's like, oh, I can't, um, I can't be suffering from that. I'm a man, you know. I'm seen weak. Now, I grew up on the projects back in Manchester in England, and you know, you either fought or you you got you either fight or you, you get beaten up. They were the two options. So, I was always this macho bodybuilding doorman type guy that didn't take any crap of anybody. I mean, imagine me going to the doorman next to me one night and go, I think I'm an alcoholic. You know, he'd probably slap me stupid and say, you know, man up or something. And that's the problem that men have is 
they 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 are scared of of showing their feelings and that's one of the things we do here is we try and get men to admit that they went through this and it's absolutely amazing you know and you can cry in front of somebody and you can't think someone's cute and you know you can buy flowers for the wife without feeling guilty and you can laugh at teddy bears and, and listen to the birds sing. I mean, it's just awesome stuff, everyday stuff. But, you know, over the generations, men are supposed to be the leaders of the house. You know, they're supposed to do this and do that, and macho and be the breadwinner. I mean, it's just not like that anymore. You know, times have changed so much. And I think what's stuck in the past is that macho image that you have to be this kind of guy. And it's, it's totally wrong. There's a lot of people suffering in silence. There's a lot of people committing suicide because of shame. So I want to say something really brave here. Well, let me tell you categorically over nearly 30 years of studying alcoholic brain, neural pathways, and neuro-linguistic programming is that <coughs> you have to step out of that, of that box and be up front because if you don't, we're, up, we're dying in, in the closet here. And, and here's a controversial part. And it's my opinion I think alcoholism right now is where the gay movement was 25 years ago. No one's coming out here. No one's saying anything. You know, people lie for us. The wives lie for us. Parents lie for us. You know, my little one used to always ask, where's daddy? Oh, he's upstairs. You know, he's tired. He's been working all day. Daddy was drunk. We'd been drinking all day and couldn't stand up was the truth. But we get people to lie for us. And that's what it all goes wrong. You know, honesty is the best way of getting well with this disease. Mm. And and you know, shame is one thing I talk about a lot on this show because I think it is a huge problem. And then I always say that shame leads to anger and then it's a negative loop between them both. So when men are ashamed, they lash out in anger because that's the main emotion that we're used to kind of communicate with. Um, and then it's just, well, then we can become ashamed of that anger. And as you alluded to, you know, in university, I saw a lot of people go to alcohol and they'd go to alcohol for anything, whether it was they did poorly on a test. They did poorly on, they did well on a test. Like almost everything involved alcohol. And one of my problems was always that people coming together wasn't about people coming together. It was about the alcohol. And then people came together because of it. People didn't just come together. And I noticed that trend as at a, from a really young age, which is why whenever I drink, I always go into it with the mindset, this is what I want to do. It has nothing to do with the outcome failure, success of anything. So how would you, like, is there a way to approach drinking healthily? And then we'll kind of get into the neuroplasticity of it. Of course there is. Yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I think I forget there's seven or 8 million people that suffer from alcoholism. So there's a bunch of people who can drink with impunity and, and successfully and your yeah, hats off to them. You know, if they can, if they can go out, you see, there's a difference between, and this will come in this, in the, what we're following shortly, there's a difference between the Sunday night, uh, the Friday night drunk and the Friday night alcoholic. One needs to be locked up overnight. One needs to go to hospital or treatment. Uh, so yeah, it's just I don't know. It's it, it, we're trying to we're trying to clear this cloud around this, you know, and push it forward to, you know, men need to start standing up and, and, and asking for help. They need to be brave about. I did, you know. I don't mind crying in front of people. I, I cry at movies. You know, I mean, the wife does it. It's like, it's awesome. We have a relationship that's phenomenal because who's making these rules up that you can't do this and you can't do that as a man? Who's making them up? I have no idea, you know? Because what happens when you stop your tears from coming, obviously, is it just builds up and builds up. And it becomes anger because we're frustrated because we can't get it out. I mean, it's going to come out some way. And uh, we just have to be real careful that, you know, we distinguish the alcoholic and the, and the, and the normal drinker. Because, you know, no one drink, go out and get drunk every Friday and Saturday night, even Sunday night with, with no effects Monday morning. And that's what we need to look at is defining them two things. And once we do that, which we have, uh, you know, you, you can distinguish between the both. And uh, alcoholism is something that everybody should be watching for and everybody should be tracing back through the family and seeing there's alcohol, you know, through the family system. And if there is, you're at risk of becoming. I mean, it skips a generation now and again, uh, but it, it is nine, nine out of 10 times you're going to get some sort of addictive personality behavior. Yeah. And, and when we talk about neuroplasticity and, and neuroscience, can just how you can unwarp or I guess 
untrain your brain to be addicted? Can you train your brain to be addicted? Like I could create it for future generations, even though my parents maybe don't have it or does it work both ways? How does that work? And what is neuroplasticity? It, well, it's all, it's always in your, your past alcoholism. You can train people to make sure that they watch out for it. Here's how, here's how neural pathways work. So if, have you ever noticed how you can get into the car when, when you're driving? You can reverse down your drive backwards. You can be speaking to your mom on the phone, listening to the radio, and waving at a neighbor all at the same time. That's because the neural pathways have been ground into the brain. Remember when you first started driving, the, the little car seemed like a tank. You know, it was like, how am I going to get this down this road with the cars on either side? It, it took a lot of concentration. Now we whiz by and we don't even think about it. That's neural pathways. And what happens is we have self-sabotaging neural pathways. So what we need to do is change them into good, healthy, positive, energetic, you know, almost bordering on aggressive success. Uh, and the more we train them and the more we use them on a daily basis, uh, the more the knee-jerk reaction is going to go that way. So that, that's what it is. And 10 years ago, we found out this in the medical fraternity is the brain's like plastic. We can, we can mold it. You know, we can, we can have this amazing thought pattern. You know, quantum physics says that, let's say on a basketball court, for instance, I can be 25, 30 places at the same time. So this is where the neural pathways and, and neuroplasticity comes in because if you can see yourself over near the goal, dropping the ball in and being a hero of the game, one has to ask oneself, how do I get there? And the simple answer is you walk over and you take that position. What you can visualize in your mind, you can hold in your hand, period. You know, I've worked with six and a half thousand patients over the last 27, 30 years, and all of them have gained success because the technique we use is phenomenal and mind-blowing. So the mind is very powerful. The brain is very powerful. So once we turn that round from self-sabotaging with the alcoholic and we, and we solve the alcohol problem by doing this and a few other things that we do in the program, then what we have is the tenacity with the neural pathways. And we have the same tenacity as we did when we we're drinking. So success becomes the beer. So now we're, we're, not, you know, we're chasing, chasing, chasing and become the best people who can ever be. It's a well-known fact that we become better husbands, better fathers, you know, better sons, because we've taken the blinkers off and we've seen life for what it is. And I wish everybody out there didn't have to go through the suffering I went through to realize this. I mean, you get up every morning and it's like, what can I cram in today? You know, and I see somebody online, I don't even know them. And, you know, they got talking about an, on a meeting somewhere that the birthday of the kids coming up and they, you know, the three months sober and they live in a little house. And, and I'm, on the, I'm, on, I'm texting them privately. What did your girl want for, for, for birthday? And I'll spend a couple of hundred dollars sending it. We spent $250,000 last year on giving stuff away to people who are trying to get their life back and by positive things and positive actions and, and saying thank you and amazing and compliment people, dopamine's released into my brain. So it's a win-win situation. Mm. And, and kind of going to what you were talking about when it came to your own story, you know, you probably learned a lot. When did you know when did you come to the realization that you were hurting, that you needed help? Because that's probably one of the biggest problems that a lot of men face is not knowing when they need that help. So when was that for you, if you started at nine and then where you are now? It was after the loss of the children, after the loss of my marriage, uh, after my company's cars, houses gone, uh, after I became homeless in the 14th month, uh, on the last night on the streets, I dropped down to my hands and knees and I started to sob like a baby. And I wasn't sobbing because I'd lost my wife and kids and all the money and stuff. I was sobbing because right there and then, I realized I was an alcoholic and I was in serious trouble. But I was in denial right until that moment. It was really crazy. because And everybody told me that every, every bad choice I made, good ones when I first started, but every bad choice that I meant towards the last three or four years of my drinking ended in, in tragedy, ended in some, someone getting hurt. I have to say my alcoholism was like a contagious disease. I infected everybody that I came around with my alcoholism, and it's true. Mm. It's really true. Do you, do you drink now, or do, are you fully sober? <clears throat> I can never fully drink alcohol in any form whatsoever today 
because I'll be right back to them days on the streets without any sort of hesitation. Uh, you know, you've just got to be real careful that you don't take alcohol in your body. So it has to be complete abstinence for me today. And and how would someone, I mean, you still interact in social settings, I'm sure. Like, how do you protect yourself against that to never have it accidentally on purpose? Like, that seems to be one of the hardest challenges that a lot of people face is, you know, my dad always says, don't put alcohol around an alcoholic. At the same time, you have to take accountability for your own actions too. So where's where's the balance there? Oh, when, when you recover from the disease, because I'm a recovered alcoholic, I'll always be an alcoholic and I always have the tendencies, but I go where beer served. I pour my wife's wine when we go out for dinner. She drinks about eight times a year. I smell the wine. I used to like German wine. The compulsion has to be gone. You cannot shield the alcoholic away from alcohol. It's never going to work. That compulsion needs to go. And that's due to all the work that we've done, the change of the mind, the positive reinforcement and the treatment that each and every one of us gets. And sooner or later, you're going to come out where the drink, drink problem has been solved. It's no longer going to self-sabotage um, and it's no longer going to be a problem as long as we do certain things on a daily basis. I stick to a routine. My routine is very important to me. And when it comes to someone in a recovery state, I'm sure shame is is a constant thing that they're they're battling where's the balance between being kind to yourself and being ashamed of yourself because i would think that there has to be some sort of balance of of kindness to know that you have to get over the 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 problem or the situation so what's that balance there well what happens when people come to us and what happens in general especially men when they come to us they think they're the only one who feels guilty and shame they don't think any other man's going through this because they would have heard on the grapevine. So the fact that every alcoholic goes through this is such a relief. And then what we call it is we go back to the scene of the crime. We go back to that trauma and we clear that stuff up because that's what's sending you relapsing every single time. And people go, well, surely not. I've dealt with some of it. What's the stuff you take into the grave with you that you still keep to yourself? That's what's killing you. Let's get that out. Let's have you know self-care Mondays, self-care Wednesdays, when we're kind to ourselves because we don't do that. Luke, I've seen people that are in multi-million dollar companies, if not billion in some cases. And when's the last time you, 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 know, you went for a sauna? Oh, too busy for that, really? When's the last time you went to a health farm? When's the last time you went to the gym? Yeah, I'm so busy. Yeah, well, if you don't take care of your health, it will take care of you sooner or later. So the whole stress management, the whole relaxation of the central nervous system, yoga, meditation, you know, takes away that, takes part of that shame away, shame and guilt, and just constant work on yourself that, hey, listen, whatever happened in the past is not your fault if you're an alcoholic. So chill out. Everything can be repaired. Everything can be mended. And you are going to be one of the greatest guys that you have ever seen in your life. And people will adore you for this when you get through it. Because, you know, if we're to believe the statistics right now around different 12 steps through, 97% of people that's got my disease die. You know, it's a very small percentage that get through. So, you know, stand out loud and proud. Get rid of that shame. Get rid of that guilt. They often say, I, I'm the person that, that says what other people are thinking because I hold no bars. Sugarcoating this recovery and alcoholism stuff kills people. It really does. If you if you, we did a study uh, four or five years ago in Richardson Hospital just outside Dallas, Texas, and uh, on a Friday and Saturday night when people were coming in, we were allowed to breathalyze them or blood test them. And 98% of people walking through the ER door on a Friday and Saturday were either drunk or wasted on drugs. You know, we, we need to look at it. So if you're the ones that are getting through this, it's an amazing start. It's a, we, are, we are the alcoholics are the only people that get two lives in one lifetime. They get the drunken life where they mess everything up and they get the next life if they do everything properly and they get to live the dream. Two years ago, my daughter got in touch with me after 25 years, Luke, on Facebook, you know, sent me a message at 3.30 in the morning, my, my time, 9.30 in the morning, her time, but I heard the phone ping and woke up and I, I could see it blurred and I knew it was off my daughter and I woke my wife up and we cried and uh, I called her straight away and then a few, about a, a couple of days later, I flew back to Manchester and... Uh, I met her for the first time in 20, since she was three and we held and we, you know, cried and stuff like that. And then she took me into the, the house and said, I've got one more surprise for you. Then she went into the living room, come back out and handed me my three month old granddaughter. 
this is the stuff that we do once we once we recover from the from the alcoholism and the guilt and the shame and the remorse. Mm. And and when you say that you turn to your wife, was that so? I know you have you have two daughters, correct? And did you lose your wife to alcohol alcoholism, or or like you lose your marriage and then get remarried, yeah. or, or how'd that work? Yeah, I got remarried with my wife with the children. Uh, I mean, look, this is where alcoholism took me. I'm never proud of this story, but I don't remember it, and it has to be told. Uh, I did some terrible things in that house. Uh, I stabbed my wife three times one night because she wouldn't let me finish drinking. That's not me. That's the disease. You know, I left my, I left my children in, in the cinema while I, while I drank, while I drove five or six miles to the liquor store to get a drink. They were only ages one and three, got back, all the lights were on, the police were there. You know, I put everybody in serious danger. So uh, after the stabbing event, I stayed in Spain for three months. But when I came home, she had all the bags packed and she said, I love you to the day I die, but you're not going to kill our children. Because I fell down on them. I, you know, I mean, so what happened was um, she took the children, ages one and three, and I got on my attorney and I said, hey, you've got like 48 hours to get to court and sort this out. I'll give you, I think it's 10,000 pounds, I can't remember, to get my kids back. So the next day, we stood at the door, my two kids. And I'm like, wow, this is, see, I told you, you couldn't mess with me. I'm a great dad. And I brought them in and I sat them in front of the TV. And, I, and, and this was it, Luke. I had charge of my children. This was serious. And I walked into the kitchen and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to have one beer just to celebrate the kids coming home? Three days later, when the police kicked the door down, I've been unconscious. I've been to the liquor store and back. Don't remember a thing. Child, children have not been fed or changed diapers for three days. And they took my kids off me right there. And then the police and the authorities served me with papers that said unfit father. And as I walking them down the path, my eldest turned around and said, daddy, daddy, please don't go. I'm crying. The police are crying. Halfway down the path, she turns around one more time. and said, daddy, daddy, please get better. And as they opened the gate, she turned around the last time. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And that's the depth of alcoholism that I went to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. That's really powerful and, and dark, honestly. And, and that's, you know, it's one of those things where I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will think of you as, um, like, did you admit to yourself at that time that you were an unfit father? And no, no, I just thought, you know, I, I drank too much again, you know, but uh, no, I was in complete denial subconsciously. I had, I couldn't understand why things were going wrong. I was a perfect father. I, I had a, I had a playroom built on the back of my house for 20,000 pounds back in the day. And talking about early eighties, you know, just for the children. And everyone's like, oh my God, look at that Dr. Rob. He's built, he's built this thing for his children. It wasn't for the kids. It's so I could put them in there and drink for the rest of the night. But I didn't figure that out until I got sober. So these great things, I thought I was a great dad. I thought I was a great husband. I wasn't. I was selfish, self-centered, and very ignorant to the fact that I was killing myself and people around me. And when did you go to school in all this to, to Oxford and, and get that degree? Was that after you were homeless or was this during? Before. And it was all before. Yeah, before, way before. I, <clears throat> I don't, that's often say I'm not sure how I got through college because I was drunk every day. I had a lot of favors drawn in. I was paying a lot of people off to do stuff they shouldn't do for me. Uh, and I scraped through. Now, many years on, about seven years ago, six years ago, I went back to college and got my second PhD in behavioral science because I knew that I've studied the brain, the mind, the central nervous system, but now I need to study the body, the behavior, the actions, the intent to finish this amazing program they got. So yeah, I did one wasted and one sober. And well, it seems like you know a lot from the first time, even if you were drunk the entire time, or is that, uh, is that mostly from the second time around? <laughs> No, I kind of remember a lot of things from it. I met some guy the other day from, from the same college, and he was like, he's, <laughs> it was online. He's like, Rob, you're alive? Well, what do you mean I'm alive? Oh, my God, you used to drink like, oh, unbelievable. You're crazy. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was good, but, man, yeah, it was rough. Uh, 
you do you think there's a problem with society and how it promotes alcohol as a as a whole? Like how much accountability do you put on society in this whole problem? Or is it not at all really? Because everyone should be in control of their own actions. Great question. Never been asked that question before in my life. I have a great answer for it. You know, if you're an alcoholic suffering, it's obviously you need to get help. But the fact that they're showing alcohol on the boat with the blonde girls having fun, all this stuff is is wrong. It's it's alcohol is very. If alcohol came out today, Luke, they would ban it instantly because of what it can cause and what it can do. You only have to see the uh, the wet brains, you know, the devastation, the deaths. You know, when we did that study in Richmond, one of the points I was trying to make is when somebody came in, we live, uh, drank himself to death, they would put it down as a liver failure. When somebody crashed a car because they passed out behind the wheel, they put it down as a car crash. Alcohol's never mentioned, and that's what causes the problems. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't blame the, the uh, beer companies for the advertisement. I should just, I think they should just be a little bit more realistic. And maybe coming after ten o'clock at night or something like that. Because I mean, the same with you, the same with me. College is the drinking days. That's what we got told. This is awesome. So, you know, alcoholics have to be a little bit careful about that. It, it will ruin you. There's no one survived it right now unless you get help. If you don't, if you don't get help, you will die. Because I always think of that too, in the sense, you know, I, I don't feel like I've ever been affected by advertising for alcohol, but I, I knew it was always around. But I think the way it was more shaped in my life was because my parents were not big on alcohol. And I know that that sometimes can mean when you go to university, you're huge on alcohol. Um, but I honestly have just never really liked it. None of my siblings have ever really liked it. I'm not sure what it is, but I see so many other people struggling with it who are my age. And you know, talking about childhood trauma, you you mentioned it earlier. It, it's really interesting that I don't I don't think I have I've had childhood trauma. I can't really. I know maybe it's just deep down there, layered. I've never acknowledged it, but you know, I can't remember anything happening that would lead me to those things. And it, I I've always looked at society and and people my age and think the fact that you need alcohol is so sad to me. Like if I drink alcohol. I'm drinking like the girly drinks that taste good or like quote unquote girly drinks that taste good because that's what I never drink for any other reason than to enjoy the drink. I I don't know. I just, I never understood drinking to get drunk and and knowing who, I mean, some of the people you work with, um, even in some of the, uh, you know, smaller subcultures, it seems that drinking is a, huge part of of those whether it's big ticket people or artists or david bowie or or elton john working like every kind of creative is seen as someone who feeds off of addiction and that's where they get a lot of their inspiration from like that must be toxic too it was when i I worked at abbey road i was a session bass player at abbey road for for about four years that's when i played with all the great guys and uh you know drugs and alcohol were freely and free given it was it was meant to you know when you when you're working all day and, and you get a call um from uh freddie's uh, manager from queen uh saying freddie would like you in the studio at 1am till 5am and you've worked all day or spent college all day, whatever you're doing, you need something to get you through it. And amphetamines and cocaine was just the key. It was awesome. And then a couple of beers when you got home. Uh, so, yeah, I was around the, the industry for quite a long time. And it's just, you know, it, 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 it's almost as, as sick as, you know, guy walks into the bar with all his friends and someone says, do you want a drink? And he says, no, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, what did you say? And he said, oh, I'm a murderer. He said, oh, thank God for that. I thought he says he was an alcoholic for a minute. It's, it's that bad, you know? It's like if you, if you weren't drinking and using, you weren't to be trusted. Yeah. It's very sad. Like, is that part of what makes them great? Or is it part of what is expected from people like that? Because, I mean, it seems like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, but it seems like everyone that becomes famous is wrapped up in that subculture of drinking and drugs. But is that what got them to be creative in the first place? Like, where is the balance between those things? 
Well, you can go back to the Beatles and look at that, the LSD trips that brought all them songs on and think, oh, great. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with it, but the people I know that's taken it, they, it does take it to another level. So I have great respect for LSD. I have great respect for marijuana. Uh, you have to ask yourself why marijuana, you get two keys of marijuana, now you get the same sentence for two keys of coke. So what's going on with marijuana? Is it a natural healer? You know, is it all these magic things that they're talking about? Well, I guess it is because, you know, that's, that's just as powerful. But I think, I think where, where, we, where we lose the track is musicians are making songs from an early age when they're kind of just one of the boys having a few drinks on a Friday night. And what happens is as soon as the first record becomes a hit, then they, they, they act freely. They can do whatever they want and drinking and drugging is part of that. You know, no one's going to stop them. Society is still not going to stop them. Society would rather I mean, an artist go on, you know, coked up or a few beers than, than go on sober and not perform. And that's another sad part of the, of the universe as it stands today. Mm-hmm. So what, what would be like a s- solution to that? Like, why doesn't anyone really come out and speak against alcoholism in the industry? I know like, some people have done it, but it doesn't seem to be a huge conversation about promoting a healthier life beyond alcohol. Yeah, it, there's, there's a one simple answer to that. There's no money in recovery. The pharmaceutical companies cannot sell you, sell you a pill to take to, to keep you under control. So that's why there's no money in it. Nobody wants to promote it. No one wants to stick the neck out. You know, CEOs will be fired. Doctors will be fired. So it's, it's still this underground movement that's, that's nasty, horrible, and frowned on still today. And yet I've worked with some of the household names. I've worked with one of the, well, I've worked with the biggest movie star in the world, the biggest singer in a band in the world, the biggest quarterback in the world. And none, I pray, I ask and pray and beg for these guys to come out, but they say one thing. My agent says no. It will have an effect on my merchandise. It'll have an effect on, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they, they take it home quietly and, you know, they live their life and hope nobody notices that they don't drink anymore. So I think it's always going to be that way. We've tried so hard with different people, you know, to, uh, to ask them to come be a spokesman. But that's why we don't have any reviews about, about our company. It's like the people we deal with, they can't go on and give a review. Some of them said, why have you got no reviews? You've got one on such and such and it's bad. Yeah, we don't know that guy. He's never been to our place, so he said he does. And the other guys, they ain't going to put their name on there, you know? Oh, I spent uh, uh, 30 days with, with Rob Kelly Recovery Group, signed Pink Floyd. I mean, it just isn't going to happen, you know? And yet we expect him to be like that. It, it's, it's like a catch-22. It, it, that's interesting that you think right now, I would think that coming out about it would increase merchandise, would increase a lot of those things. But I find it so funny how so many things that we struggle with in our day-to-day life as as individuals all of a sudden when it comes out and there comes time to put our money where our mouth is and forgive people we don't actually forgive it's like you're canceled either way (coughs) you are you know and a lot of people who've come out and been brave enough to uh, if you dig deep inside what they're doing you you find out the press already know and they're going to go to press with it so they come out first i mean nobody wants to come out and say hey I have a drink problem. No, because agents won't touch you. Directors won't touch you. Record companies won't touch you to a certain degree because the difference between having a good time and partying every night to alcoholic. You know, you're an alcoholic? Shit, you, you, you can't be an alcoholic. That's unreliable. That's unstable. You think we're going to invest $5 million in the third out? No, we can't do that. You might go off back to treatment. It's just a, it's a nightmare. It really is. And I can't blame him. Yeah. So if, if someone comes out and they and being an alcoholic is untrustworthy, but then they also can't say that they've been to recovery for alcoholism, that, uh, it's just like a never ending cycle of, of, an, of, of, wow, that's awful. <laughs> well, there's, 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 there's two major people that we, that we work with um, who actually came out after they knew they got well with us. They came to our, our treatment. I can't mention names, but one of them is a real big iron man. He's pretty tough. Uh, and the other is a great, is, I think he's white. It's the greatest white rap singer or something. Of, of, so I don't know. But them guys did come out after and uh, say, hey, I suffered with abuse. I suffered with alcohol abuse. You know, I'm an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it does wonders. It really does. And I think we're, we're seeing a turn gradually. But I mean, it's only percentages are low. 
four yeah. or five percent are coming out. And, and you mentioned a little bit about pharmaceutical companies, and I know there's probably whole scandals and, and conspiracy theories around that. So do you take a more natural healing approach to your therapy and, and recovery to, to kind of 100%. stay away? Okay. Yeah, 100%. The, the, uh, the pharmaceutical com- companies run this country. End of story. Not, it's not even an argument, guys, if you listen to this. It's not even an argument. Uh, believe me. I, I went up against a Purdue who, who does all the Xanax and the, all that stuff, uh, attorney, live on TV. And I slaughtered him live, psychologically, verbally, physically. I was bigger than him. And the very next day, Purdue, who's a multi-billion dollar company, filed for bankruptcy because they were wrong. They're making pills. What's the matter with, well, you know, morphine. Morphine was okay for the guys in the water. It's got the leg blown off. But all of a sudden now, because we got a bad headache, we need, you know, 10 times, 100 times powerful. It's crazy. You don't need that stuff. Jesus, that stuff's going to kill you. You know, it's just like, that's what I think it is anyway. Yeah, because I I have some friends who uh, have mental health and and diagnosis, and they've been off pills for as long as possible. But, you know, it, 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 I know people that are really uh, cynical of the pharmaceutical, even psychiatrists, because the first thing they do, like 30 minutes into talking to them, into them is they say, maybe I should prescribe you some, some drugs. And I'm like... 30 minutes? Freaking hell, that's a lifetime. I did experiments over here. Five minutes was the longest one I have. It's usually one or two minutes. Walk in. What are you feeling? Oh, you know, I just, I just feel as if I can't concentrate. Okay, there's a 90 Adderall. See you next week. Script. And I was out. I was aghast. I threw the script back at him and said, how dare you? You're not even spewing on my name. You know, that's how crazy it is. But it's all money making. You know, these, these psychologists and psychiatrists, they've got like three-minute appointments with people. Don't want to hear your stories. Don't want to hear what's wrong. Tell me the main purpose why you're here, lack of concentration, Adderall, every single time. Not even even going to go into the payoffs that they get, allegedly. But Jesus, there's a whole industry out there that people are closing their eyes to. Do you know something? Every heroin addict or heavy drug addict that I've had through these doors, we ask him a couple of questions. And one of them questions is, where did it all start? And 97% a six and a half thousand said it started with my doctor. He prescribed and whatever he prescribed then. And, and, and after a bit, he cut them off. They'd become dependent. They go to the streets and all bets are off. Yep. That's how bad it is. Yeah. <clears throat> Cause painkillers, right? That's the number one way they would even get them in the first place. Exactly. You go, I mean, look at Florida alone, you know, they had pain mills. They had doctors. You can see just to write out. I mean, I went to my doctor. He's like, Oh, we don't, we don't prescribe Adderall anymore. I said, you don't? I said, well, I don't. We have a special doctrine that just writes Adderall prescriptions all day. And I looked at him. I said, you don't find anything wrong with that? He said, well, it's like every second patient's after Adderall. And you don't find anything wrong with that? It's like, it's blowing my mind. Oh, no, we don't think anything's wrong. We'll just stick another doctor on and get him to write prescriptions all day. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Well, no one's taking responsibility. You know, yeah. listen, guys, if you're listening to this, you think you have a drug problem, don't take your doctor's word. Ask him why he's putting you on that. This is your life we're talking about. People are just gobbling loads of pills down. It's like, do you know what they do? Do you know what the side effects are? Just watch a commercial on TV. They, they show you the laughing girl with the swinging baby, and underneath it, they're going, this can kill you. This can cause blindness. This can cause your best friend to go. It's like, Jesus, are you listening to this commercial? It's crazy how they do it. Well, it's it's fascinating because I'm not from America. I'm from Canada, and, and uh, I grew up watching TV, never really saw many pharmaceutical ads. My grandpa had a timeshare in Florida. I would go down to Florida. Pharmaceutical ad, every other ad. It was ridiculous. They have like three-minute-long infomercials about them, and I'm like, are people really that sick here? Like, what is going on in this country? I noticed that from like a 10-year-old's perspective. Um yeah. And, and one of the things that I talk about on the show a lot, I had a full episode about ADHD and, and we're talking about how rates of diagnosis have gone up. And I'm like, have they really gone up or are they just loose, more loose with their definition of ADHD? And, and that's something I do really fear about a lot of people is, I mean, worry and, and anxiousness are common human traits. I mean, but most of them are not, I would say, anxiety like 
pill-inducing anxiety. Look, you, you, you can't diagnose a kid or adult with ADHD in a three-minute appointment. You just can't do it. Just because they're telling you they can't concentrate, all that means nine out of ten times is the friend has told them to say that, so they get Adderall. It's like everyone's putting a blind eye to it. It's always got ADHD. Uh, okay, how do you know? Oh, the doctor told me. Okay, well, how does he know? Uh, well, we saw him for like four minutes. Oh, okay then. Okay. So if you come and see me for four minutes and I told you I had cancer, would you believe me? No. Well, there you go. You know, you can't diagnose someone in, in a three to five minute spot. You can't do it. Yeah. It, it's, it, I knew people in high school that took Adderall, even though they weren't ADHD. And then afterwards, of course, they're like, I can't really focus. Well, yeah, if you're comparing, you're not being able to focus when you had Adderall to when you didn't have Adderall, of course you weren't able to focus, but that doesn't mean now you just, to me, it's a performance enhancing drug. Like that's, that's really what it is. I knew people in university that took it all the time. I'm like, I won't, I will refuse to take it. I don't, I don't take coffee either. I mean, I don't think it's as bad, but I just don't, I don't like the idea that I will ever need to rely on something to be at a high performance. And that's why you see a lot of athletes once they're done their careers, I mean, they struggle because a lot of them are taking pain shots, testosterone, whatever, to their knee or arm when it's sore, so that they can get a, in play. Yeah, I mean, we, we I'm, I'm friends with uh, a guy from uh, used to play for uh, the Buccaneers. I think it was the Buccaneers. Yeah, it was uh, Randy, and and he would tell me back in the day they would come out and the doctor would be sat on a bench just near them, and the and the the door was wide open to anything they wanted. It's like you don't care how much you take. It's like as long as you turn up next week and play like you did today, son, you can have anything you want. And he's out about that. He's blatant. He was on, he was on my podcast. He, t he told it to millions of people. And I, and I was like, wow, you know, it's crazy because nobody wants to know. Turn up and do your job. That's all people are interested in. It's like, guys, we need to chill out here. We need to all set back, especially men, and start being men again. Not drug, drunk, crazed people who think they're in control. You're not in control if you put anything outside your body. Now, I'm not condemning uh, stuff uh, for depression and stuff like that. That's up to your own doctor. It's entirely up to you. I'm just saying personally, I've seen thousands of people uh, get to a place where they don't need their medication anymore for depression because once you sort the drink problem out, it's like somebody comes to go, oh, I'm an alcoholic, Rob. Yeah, okay. Oh, and I'm depressed. Really? No shit. Really? It's like me saying I've got one eye, but I can see through it okay. Of course you can. Of course there's depression. Of course there's bipolar. Of course there's all these other side effects of alcoholism or alcohol abuse because that's the way it is. Alcohol's a depressant. Well, I drink alcohol to feel good. It's a depressant. You know, you might feel good at the time in front of your friends when you go back home to your lonely house. See how much of a lift up it is then. It's like people are just not as educated as they should be. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And there's lots of hiding as just as the doctors and pharmaceutical does hides just as sports teams hide uh, beer and alcohol companies hide. And, and that's why I'm like really hesitant of a lot of those professional opinions, quote unquote, is because, I mean, the doctors are the ones that are saying, you know, we're over prescribing, but they're also the ones over prescribing. So where's the balance of trust and, and who do you go to for those answers? And knowing that pharmaceutical companies run the world, or I think, I like, I think PR firms and like, and pharmaceutical companies together run the world. PR, they control the narrative and then everyone else can do what the, whatever the hell they want. Cause you think about how many people are hiding secrets across entire organizations. It's why I'm like, conspiracy theories about some of these things can be true and the, why they sound like it's all made to sound ridiculous and, and it's so much misinformation but so much information too it's it's hard to digest it all well it's, it's like whenever we fight against it whenever you fight against the odds you fight against all sorts of conspiracies i know for a fact the government the the pharmaceuticals the the best way to put somebody down who comes out with the truth is to ridicule them but you know, one thing that we I really wanted to go into because it's on the topic of manhood and masculinity was was homelessness. And I know you experienced it for a year, and and some would say only a year. Um, other people experienced it for a lifetime. But that is one problem that I think we discussed is predominantly men. Um, like, where? Why are so many men homeless? Does it come back to that shame aspect, or where where does that come from? I think so. I think anyone that does anything that they shouldn't do is cast out. Wives leave, uh, jobs are lost, 
you know, it's crazy. And then, you know, it's just, I, the, the people I met on the streets, Luke, like there were scientists, you know, there were CEOs of corporations, you know, there were guys that if you offered them a house and a million dollars would not take it. I found trust from babies there on the streets. Oh my, I was amazed. My dad owes SO oil. What? Yeah, I don't believe in that lifestyle. So I'd like to live on the streets. But society turns the back on the people on the streets until it's your son, until it's somebody famous. And then we all want to be, you know, gung ho for a week or two, but it soon dies off. They're the forgotten people. People just step over me, Luke. They used to spit on me on the floor, throw diapers at me, you know, when I was unconscious. Nobody, gave, nobody cared about me. I was abandoned, you know, and I, got, I know why I got off the streets to, to voice this deal. You know, I always give to the homeless. People go, oh, he's just going to buy beer with that. I go, good. That's what I do if when I was on the streets. I wouldn't be buying a, a butterfly sandwich from Madame Blue Blas over there. I'd be getting hardcore liquor because my time is horrible on the streets. It's like we have to do our part. You know, we really do. And it's all about care. It's about love. You know, it's about showing people we care. You know, if somebody didn't tell me on the streets that I was good enough to get off, I would never got off. Because I didn't believe myself I'd ever got off the street. So I, I would have, actual fact, I died twice on the street. And they brought me back on both occasions because I was done, you know? That, that's an interesting talking point, too, is you mentioned how if they were, if they were going to buy a beer, it's like, that's okay. Do you, does it anger you when you see people that are alcoholic? I wouldn't imagine that it does. It's more like empathy and, and yeah. their, their time will come. Yeah, I think so. I think every, everyone's got the chance to recover. I think everyone's given the opportunity to. <clears throat> in the interim period, all I did was drank, so no, I could handle it. And maybe that's their only way. And you get to a point of alcoholism that if you did stop, you would die, you know, of uh, some sort of attack or tremors or DTs or respiratory system slowing down or heart attack. I mean, you've got to be very careful. You can't just come off alcohol. If you're, if you're an alcoholic or a heavy drinker, it can kill you. Mm-hmm. And now shifting back to the family, uh, you mentioned how one daughter's come back. What, uh, what, what's the relationship like with the other daughter or, or is there no relationship? How do you overcome family as a, if you're an alcoholic that's listening to this, like how do you overcome those challenges? And I mean, can you reach out or do you have to wait? No, that, as far as she's concerned, she doesn't have a father the youngest one. She was one when it all happened. So you have to understand that we put a lot of people through a lot of stuff and all you got to do is work on yourself. Start working for, for other people start giving to other people. How can I best serve thee is the best saying I have. And hopefully uh, everything will come back. And I truly believe that my daughter, the youngest daughter in time will, will come back into my life because I'm doing the right thing today. You know, I'm working with God's kids you know, I'm, I'm inspiring people. I'm out there in the public. I'm a loud mouth and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm powerful. And, you know, I'm that guy that was, that was supposed to do this all along. So you just got to work on yourself, be the best person you can be. And, and in time, everything will come back, but it's really hard to live with that. Believe me, I live with it for a long, long year. I did 12 step on it, did therapy on it. It, 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 it kind of quiets in the mind, but it never really goes away. I can be walking down the road now or driving and see, you know, the, the weekend father at McDonald's is a little bit drunk coming out with his two-year-old, you know, daughter or something. And it got a flash right back to when I used to do that. And it, it's, it's a nightmare for me. I'm still having treatment today because of it. Mm. Do, does she know that you're her father? Like she knows your name and, and things <laughs> yeah. of that nature? Yeah. And again, rightly so, you know. I did a lot of bad stuff. I mean, it takes two to tango all the time. You know, I had a wife who was enabling and then turned on me last minute. And again, rightly so. I have no bad words about her whatsoever. She did the best thing for our children. That was to leave. Mm -hmm. So, and that inspired a book, which was is Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, which you said is the last things that your oldest daughter, I believe, said to you uh, when she was leaving. So what is that? like what inspired you to, to write a book about your story? Like, does, do you think that helps with the getting the clients that you get or was that just something that you felt like you needed to do? Yeah. It, we, we have no money to gain. We, we don't sell it at like high profile. It's there. If anybody wants it, all the proceeds, not profits, all the proceeds go back to, to uh, around the world to charities that we believe in. But uh, it was done. Um, well, everyone kept saying, Rob, you need to write a book. 
And I'm a writer, I can write a book, I can't even do a crossword without getting bored. I'm never going to write a book. But I had an understanding wife. I used to give her bits of paper, little notes, tapes with like two minutes of stuff on over two or three years. And uh, this was about two and a half years ago. And then we had it, we had the manuscript ready, but we didn't have a title. So uh, about six months later, we're still looking for the title. And that's where my daughter got in touch. And we, I told my daughter to write this book and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to dedicate it to her. And she says, why don't you call it Daddy Daddy, please stop drinking. And I thought, wow. So that's what we did. We call it Daddy Daddy, please stop drinking. So it's only available on Amazon. Uh, forecast is in the next seven or eight weeks, it's going to go to the top of the New York's bestseller or Amazon bestsellers, whichever comes first. So, yeah, we have some uh, plans just to promote it. It's, it's, it's not a monetary thing with us. Like I say, we don't see a dime of it, but it costs us to make it, so we actually lose money on it. But, it's, it, you know, it's for people who have, who have alcohol problems. It's for families who want to learn. It's for people who want to laugh and a smile and a cry. You know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a success story at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. When, was it, when did you write it? Um, I want to say we started about three years ago, maybe. Okay. I don't know. It's it's only been out on Amazon for about six months, maybe 12 months. So mm-hmm. what I do is I always carry a big box in my car whenever I go anywhere, and I hand them out free to everybody that I see because I just want them to read it and either identify or at least understand more about men who have alcoholics, who are dad, who are husband, who've messed it all up. And mm-hmm. if your son or daughter or husband's going through that, then there's there's hope that you can do what I did. Mm-hmm. And I'll make sure everyone listening to link it in the description of this podcast too, so everyone can go find it, go support it, try to bump up those numbers too. Um, but uh, Dr. Rob, I, I appreciate you so much for being with me today. Um, I think you've you sum up the name of this podcast, The Imperfect Pod. It's about imperfections, coming to balance, coming to terms with that imperfection, holding yourself accountable, but still being kind to yourself to move forward. Um, and that is is basically what this show is all about. And as a man, there's things that the I love the bluntness that you bring, the charisma, the eccentricism. I don't know if that's a word. Uh, but it I, is, I, I invented I, it. Okay, you invented the word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> I'm I'm here for it. I love it. I thank you for sharing your story. Where can people support you, find you more about what you do? Just go on your search engine, Google or something, just Dr. Rob Kelly's come up with about four or five pages about me. Uh, if you want to go straight to the course, I spell my name with two Bs. So just go to robkelly.com and uh, shoot us an email, a text or whatever you want. And uh, we'll have fun. I try and answer all my emails and letters because I do get loads and loads and loads. But I want, I, want, I want to leave your peeps with, some, with, with, with this, which I've learned over the, over the years, is <laughs> if, you're, if you're sat there and, and you don't feel you're good enough or you don't think you measure up or you don't think you concede, I want to, I want to apologize to you guys because somebody's put that there. It's not the truth. You can be a survivor. You can be a winner. You can be anybody you want. Make your own rules to life. Don't wait for other people to make the rules. I don't like them. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm going to link all of his socials, all of his, I'll put his email in the bio too, free to contact and reach out. Um, he does work with some interesting people. He's, I mean, he's worked with Elton John and what's, what's your story about Elton John before we go? Well, yeah, I, you- I was, uh, I was sessioning at Abbey Road and uh, he did a piece there and he come down, the bass player wasn't available. So they asked me to step in doing, I did about eight or nine songs with him. Um, but I, I didn't really get to hear the songs. I just did the bass line. I'll give you a quick funny story. After one session, about three o'clock in the morning, we were all wasted. And uh, Elton's like, okay, guys, we're back to my place. It's the penthouse suite at the Savoy Hotel. We're going to get a taxi around there. So we jumped in and it was me, the lead guitar player, Elton, uh, two bodyguards and four girls that went around up to his place and we're, and we're laughing and we're drinking and we're stuff. And all of a sudden, I, it was a horrible night, raining and thundering. It was a terrible night. That's why we called it short because it kept cutting the trans, the uh, generator off in, in Abbey Road and we kept having to stop and start again. So he's shouting on the phone in his bedroom. So I'm thinking he's shouting at Abbey Road going, hey, you should have blah, blah, blah. When I walked in, he's actually on the, on the phone to the receptionist downstairs and the manager asking them or telling them that if the rain and the wind, if you don't get the rain and the wind to stop immediately, I'm never going to book in this hotel again. 
That's how crazy it got. That sounds like a, I don't know. If, I think he's calling the wrong person. He needs to call upstairs, not downstairs. Right. That's, uh, <laughs> yes. that's a problem. Man. Um, yeah, I appreciate you so much for being here, sharing these stories, Dr. Rob, uh, and amazing the work that you're doing. So I appreciate you and, and thank you again. Thank you so much, Luke. It was a ball. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this week's episode with Dr. Rob. Again, all of the links to the description or all the links to his work are in the description of this episode, his Instagram, some of his other videos and his email. So everyone, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you so much. Again, second last episode, uh, interview episode anyways, next week is and is with going to be another great high energy interview. And then after that, I'll be closing off with episode 75 with just my personal reflections on the imperfect pod as a whole. So I hope you look forward to it and I'll see you all next week.